welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. I also, before I begin, uh, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today, I wanted to draw attention as well that uh, some of you, you might have gotten notice that um, Crystal Rendell, our missionary over in Niger, uh, she is, the, the region that she's in has been experiencing uh, quite a lot of violence, and uh, the, the country there has recently had an election, and it's, it's difficult ground. Uh, to, to hoe over there. It, uh, Niger is 99% Muslim, uh, but uh, she has said she is safe. Uh, I, I, I pray the, uh, to God that that is still true. I'm going to be praying for her as I close the message as well, so you know. And, uh, and I've gotten updates from a couple of you as well who forwarded me, uh, forwarded me information about her. I've titled uh, this message today, The Promise of a New Generation. A new one, always coming. Um, folks, I, I really like this passage. I, I really do, because I really like the spirit that I see amongst our young people. That is just being honest and genuine from the heart. At the same time, I would like the young people to like what they see about uh, some of us in the older generations as well. You know, uh, a healthy Church is a multi-generational church. People of all ages. A uh, church's style of music, the application of the teaching, and the overarching ministries of a congregation. It ought to be able to uh, edify and multiply every generation. All people of all ages. You know, Children should be eager to sit next to grandma and grandpa uh, with their Bibles open. Everybody reading and hearing and singing to Christ. If the environment is not uh, such that it can occur, the church is not entirely healthy. We must be able to worship together as a family. Uh, Therefore, uh, we must be capable of embracing that which is new without completely disregarding that which is a little older. You follow me? And since, uh, I'll I'll just hit this right off the bat, since the style of worship, it's always convenient to blame for generations not wanting to worship together. That's always the first thing that that churches go to, uh, yet that is not the primary cause. Uh, Music is merely a symptom of a generational gap. It's not the reason for it. The reality is, if a church exclusively plays Uh, old, obscure, ancient hymns that drive away the younger generation, you have a problem. If a church is only willing to crank up the amplifiers and dim the lights and stoke the fog machine so that even grandma can't see uh, the text on the page of her Bibles, you too have a problem. Churches need, uh, churches need to nurture a, a pleasing, a pleasurable middle ground uh, where people of all ages can rejoice, they can laugh, they can cry with one another while, while viewing and preserving uh, the historic doctrines of the faith. 
that which is true, that which is eternal. It's as serious as that giant chasm between heaven and hell that is only bridged with the blood of Christ. So it's very serious uh, uh, what we have uh, before us here uh, today in, in this church, preserving uh, the true doctrines of the faith and passing them on to a new generation. A healthy church then will strive, will work hard at edifying all generations in unity. I have, I have a short story, hope it's short anyhow. When Reed and I were on mission work up in North Dakota, back in, uh, uh, starting back in 2008, we visited different churches. We had a ministry to the state capital of, of discipling and evangelizing state leaders. Part of our role, our job, was to visit churches of local legislators and also just getting the word out that we were doing this ministry in the capital. And we visited one church in particular, which was an influential church in Fargo. And it was, it was a big church, about 1,300 people. And... Uh, they, they had a very, uh, a very prominent local pastor there, and we visited, went into the sanctuary, and it was, it was that style, it was very dark, uh, had dueling guitars, other things. The music was actually real good. It was reverent music. The preaching w- was very good as well. We noticed there weren't a whole lot of older people. We visited again and discovered that there were a lot of older people in the church, and we decided to worship with them one Sunday as well. And we found that in their old sanctuary is where the gray hairs met. And uh, they sang old, uh, even some borderline obscure hymns that the younger people didn't want to sing. And they were in different sanctuaries, in different parts of the building. And then when the time would come for the older people to, for the message, they would pipe it in by video screen. Uh, from the other room. Something just didn't appear fully healthy about that. When you can't worship with a younger generation or an older generation, Christ together as one. Certainly times change. Times change. And, And there's one thing I can assure each of us today. If the Lord continues to tarry, the page will turn. It will turn, there will arise a new generation who will assume controlling influence over Christ's church, and the old will eventually surrender it. Whether we like it or not, that is what will happen. It always happens that way. Changing changing of generations, it's kind of like running a relay race. Kind of like running a relay race. And the generations can either practice together for a clean handoff, or they can drop the baton in shame during the middle of the race. We're trying for a clean handoff generation to generation. And if you have any familiarity with with running a relay, you know it is essential that every runner on the team practices the running with the handoff. Still, as you can see in that picture right there, the greater responsibility for a positive exchange lies in the hands of the trailing runner. The one who ran first. He or she who runs the initial leg is responsible to place the baton safely into the hands of the fresh new runner for the second leg, the third leg, so on and so on. But every member of the team is obligated to practice, to train for success in the goal. 
Today's passage describes a king. He's of a fading generation who did not want to practice nor perform a handoff. He's portrayed as an old and foolish king, as you will notice as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. The story contains only two people. There's a wise young lad who will eventually become king, and there's an old foolish king who will, one way or another, lose his grip on the baton. It's going to happen. Don't be confused as I read verse 15 that references a second lad. That does not introduce an additional third person to the narrative. Uh, The second lad could also be faithfully translated into the youth, the second, referring to the lad who becomes king second. In the story, there is an old first king and a wise lad who becomes his replacement. In verse 13... A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he, referring to the lad, has come out of prison to become king, even though he was poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second, meaning the lad, who replaces him replaces the old king. There is no end to all the people, and all, to all who were before them, and even to the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. The passage is about, is about the transitional nature, the transience of popular leadership. Folks, it is fleeting. It is fleeting. Joe Montana, who many of you have never heard of, which makes my point right there. (laughs) Joe Montana recently called uh, Tom Brady after this last Super Bowl win, and uh, he told him to keep playing as long as you can, because once it's over, it's over. So as long as you are able, the old Joel Cool says, stay in the game. When it's over, it's over. What's that? Stay in Tampa. Tampa. (laughs) But even even for Tom Brady, there there will come a, a limiting factor. Due to age, he will eventually lose his edge. And shortly thereafter... I think it is about a five-game losing streak right now. Jeff Rogan, isn't it about five games, a losing streak, when they start calling for the head of the older guy? It doesn't take long, does it? A losing streak. Uh, There will be throngs of people who start crying out, you know, give us someone younger. Give us someone who can play. Give us somebody who can win. And whether it's actors or athletes or, or runway models, it doesn't matter. At some point, the baton is going to be passed. And it's not only true for celebrities. Every industry will be forced to make room for a new generation that comes with new ideas, and they will be forced to eventually pass them 
the torch. Pass them the torch. The older ideas, the older processes, they will eventually fade away. It always happens that way. You know, growing up in a farm, I can tell you back in the 70s and 80s, farmers don't farm the same way today as they did back then. They still grow corn and wheat, but they farm with precision. Their tractors are satellite-guidanced. Everything is computerized. Crops aren't only sold by the bushel at the local grain elevator and dumped in a small truck. They're contracted by the metric ton over the internet. A young farmer, therefore, needs to be ambitious. He has to be intelligent. He needs to be passionate to excel in order to learn new things. Do you know what the very best thing? I've seen this again and again. Uh, the very best thing that an older farmer can do for his business, for his enterprise, he can find a poor, wise lad. One who's ambitious. Give him a stake in the business. Offer him hope for a future. Include the younger man in his decisions. And the old farmer, he will then retain a place to influence the younger man the young lad, and because uh, that lad will make a few amateur mistakes, that is important. Because he is ambitious, the lad will be a little optimistic. He'll probably contract more grain than his fields will grow on a regular season. That's when the bank comes calling, by the way. Yeah. The old farmer is going to help prevent the young lad from making simple mistakes, from blowing it. But the young lad is strong. He is ambitious. He is capable to help that old farmer uh, to new challenges of a modern day. You follow me? I love to slip in this Proverbs, uh, this Proverb 20, verse 29. You've heard it if you've been here a while. I love slipping this in whenever I can. It's one of my favorites. The glory of the young man is their strength. And the splendor of the old man is their gray hair. That is a good one. Youth supplies strength. Age supplies experience. Both the old and the young must rely on on wisdom in order to complete their work. They must understand and use wisdom. So to establish that Solomon isn't providing us a, a sequence here of unrelated axioms, do you remember what we learned two weeks ago? Two weeks ago today, about our previous passage, verse 9 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If one falls into a pit, there's another there to help him out, right? So Solomon is still ruminating on this same principle of wisdom. People need one another. We need one another. But now in verse 13, he he adds a new dynamic to the equation. And it is this recognition that an older generation needs the younger generation involved. You've got to work together if you want to remain relevant. Folks, I am all over this. I'm all over this. And I'm still reasonably young as far as pastors go. So, So I am going to apply this to church ministry. 
in a few minutes because I'm all over this. I, I love the young folks involved. Um, before I do, I'd like to show us how this promise of a new generation, it can help each man and every woman in virtually every aspect of our lives. Look at me at verse 13. Verse 13 serves as a denunciation. The current king is old and foolish. He's too stubborn to acknowledge that times changed and he is now outdated. His methods and his approaches are obsolete. And the problem is not that he is old. That that is not the problem. The problem is that he's unwilling to harness a, a valuable resource directly at his disposal. The, the last seven words of verse 13 expose this tragedy. It says, He no longer knows how to receive instruction. That's the king. The problem isn't his age, he can't learn can no longer receive instruction. That meaning of the word uh, instruction there suggests he's reluctant to heed warning. Not, not willing to be corrected. It isn't that he doesn't have any ability to learn, but that he won't listen. He will not listen. Solomon's declaration says that this king no longer knows. He no longer knows. It indi- indicates that the king wasn't always this way. He, he, he used to adjust. He was previously teachable and understanding. He used to heed advice before, but no longer. No longer. Uh, we, we would say, uh, commonly, he's grown set in his ways. Verse 13, it's designed to project a, a sad image of one who was once a great man. The old king has lost his sense of discernment. He looks foolish. And the younger generation notices that they plead for revision. They plead for some change. They aren't offended by his age. But they want a king who acts wise. One who listens because they know what Proverbs 12 verse 15 says. It says a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Yet the king has shut his doors. And the promise of a potential uh, of a new generation uh, has been lost to him, to the king. Don't, don't get me started. Do churches suffer from this? Oh, all over the nation. All over the nation. Solomon says, it would be better to be poor and wise and young. That would be better. Better off is the lad who has nothing going for him than the king who has the whole kingdom under his control. Uh, He has wisdom, the young lad. Uh, It doesn't say that he is perfect, by the way. It doesn't say that he's already fully mature, either. It says the lad is wise. That's intended to amplify a direct contrast between him and the old and foolish king. The lad has this going for him. The young guy has, has this. He's willing to heed instruction and to learn. He's willing to grow, to adjust, and to change. Folks, that, that is wisdom. That is wisdom right there to heed instruction. In fact, I thought of this just as I was coming up. Proverbs 1 verse 1. 
All right? Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, to the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom is, uh, is understanding. It's one who is teachable, is wisdom. Where was I? Gerald, was it, where was I? Um, wise, the wise young lad. Uh, the wise young lad is willing to do what the foolish king is not. He's willing to adjust. He's willing to, alert, to learn. He's willing to adapt. He's willing to lead. And he's going to lead. And, and that wisdom in order to learn, it's going to open doors for him. First, it's going to open cell doors. Like virtually every promising young man or woman. They, they, these begin by, uh, life by facing adversity. The lad had nothing going for him. In verse 14 it says, He has come out of prison. That, that gives a picture of a person who has persevered through hard times. The text reminds us of a young man named Joseph, doesn't it? Young man named Joseph. It's a, it's a picture of one who perseveres. Joseph arose out of the dungeons of Egypt. He became second only to Pharaoh uh, to rule over the, the entire land. Verse 14 also describes the lad as, as one who was born poor in his kingdom. That supplies imagery of David. You remember David, he, he was dismissed as, as the smallest among all of his brethren. He was insignificant. But he arose to slay Goliath and then become king. But Solomon's story here, it's not intended for us, or not designed for us to, to identify one single historical figure. It's wisdom literature. We're, we're to pull the eternal, uh, the timeless truth out of it. It's given to remind us how common it is for the greatest leaders to persevere through adversity and then become great. They overcome the challenges of their time. Both Joseph and David also rose out of obscurity. They were nobodies. They rose uh, to save and to lead a new generation. And what did the people do? Well, huge throngs of people followed each of them. They each persevered through contrasting situations. Uh, David is held back by, by a foolish king named Saul. Saul was unwilling to hand off the baton to a new generation, didn't want anything to do with it. And he became extremely jealous of David when he heard the women singing in, in the streets, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, right? What did Saul try to do? He tried to kill David. 
tempted to kill him. Joseph encounters a different scenario. When released from prison, Pharaoh recognizes the wisdom in young Joseph. Pharaoh remains Pharaoh, but he hands Joseph his signet ring. That's indicative of handing, handing Joseph the keys to the kingdom. This is my authority and my power. Uh, I, I'm turning it over to you because you are wise. And, and, and both, uh, one thing that both share is both David and Joseph, they go through a very long and painful era, uh, an interval of preparation for leadership. They persevere through a tough times, each one of them. Uh, there's one thing that Saul and Pharaoh share. They're both eventually replaced. Both eventually replaced by a promising new generation. It always happens that way. It always happens that way. Pharaoh acted wise. He trusted in Joseph. He received counsel. Saul Saul played the fool. What did he have to do? He had to fall on his sword, didn't he? It didn't end well for him. And regardless of our setting, it works the same on Wall Street as it does on Main Street. It doesn't matter. You can own a hardware store. It can be something that simple. Uh, Or a car dealership. You have to make space in your showroom for new inventory and fresh ideas. There is a new generation rising who will demand it. They will demand it. I'm still talking business, by the way. Talking business here. We haven't transitioned yet. But if you won't adjust, here's what the younger generation will do right here. They'll open up their own hardware store. Theirs will be bigger. Theirs will be better. They, they will build a new uh, Home Depot directly across the street from your hardware Hank. Some of you know what hardware Hank is. Yeah, those old little hardware stores. Or, or you might own might have owned a, a Phillips 66 for 30 years. I remember going in them when you were growing up. And the Phillips 66 gas station, they'd come out and they would pump your gas, wipe your windows, check your oil. Gerald's family watched a, a video here recently. Oh, it was, it was Andy Griffith. And, uh, and they went out to put gas in the car. And uh, Bryson's like, Daddy, what are they doing? That was an earlier age, wasn't it? An earlier age. You might own a Phillips 66 for 30 years. Never saw a need to change anything. I know in the one that, that was near where I grew up, it was basically uh, you could get uh, a Coke machine, a few wiper blades, and some wind, windshield washer fluid. That's it, right? You might have even employed little Johnny as the teen who would go out and pump the gas. And Johnny might have liked working for you. He wanted to help you modernize your Philip 66 a little bit. You told him no. Now little Johnny, he's the general manager of the new racetrack that just came in across the street. <laughs> Do not wonder why people throng over to that bright new store. They've got 22 flavors of fountain drink. People throng to what is new. And the lesson transfers to virtually every industry and every facet of life. 
Don't let the story involving kings make you think this doesn't apply to all of us who are non-kings. It surely does. The king in Israel was to serve as a role model for wise behavior for the whole nation. This is wisdom literature. There is application for all of us. Israel knew with their king what is good for the goose is good for the gander. Was wise for him is wise for us. And a wise king would harness the potential of the young lads and the young ladettes. I just made that up. <laughs> and he'd do it for the benefit of his kingdom. The progress of the entire kingdom. Besides, you aren't going to be able to stop it. You, you can't stop it. So the intelligent thing would, to do would be to harness and develop the potential and the strength of the poor wise lads. You develop them. You take them uh, alongside. Do you think we could find any lesson at all here for Christ's church? Young people in our midst? Did Christ the King recognize that he was going to, to hand off the baton to some younger fellas at one point? Was he going to have to give the building plans, the the blueprints to his kingdom, to a group of a younger generation who had quite a few things to learn, by the way? They didn't have it all together right off the bat. And yes, Christ recognized they were immature in that group and they were going to need some practice. But he developed those twelve. He poured his life into them. Include innumerable women to continue the task that he was going to leave behind when he was crucified for sins on Calvary. He knew he was going to have to leave this work that he has started behind for others to pick up. He can't do it all himself. He's going to have to pass the torch at some point. We read in Acts Chapter 1, verse 3, that even after being raised on a third day, he appeared to his disciples over a 40-day period. We're told, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Talking to them about his kingdom and the work he had for them to do. Probably all of them were young. Likely most were younger than Jesus, so we can't say for certain. But all were young. They were surely inexperienced. They, they made mistakes. But Jesus entrusted his kingdom work to a new generation of disciples. He included them. And then he commanded them, and us by the way, go and make more of them. Go and make more disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Raise them up, teach them, strengthen them. And what we repeatedly observe in those twelve apostles is their teaching and equipping of a promising new generation. They did it for the works of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, You see it among the women in Titus chapter 2. The older shall teach the younger. Why is that? Folks, it's because the generation is going to change. It's eventually going to change. 
We see it practiced by Jesus. We see it in the apostles. It's especially prominent of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Paul was very missional toward training a younger generation to take his place to lead the church. We had men by the name of Silas and Titus and Timothy and Luke, even Mark in the end. He taught them and he trusted them. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, saying, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's perpetual. And Timothy here becomes the poster boy for a promising new generation. During our scripture reading, I read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul writes this, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands of the presbytery. That means the church recognized him laid hands on him, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to your teaching, Timothy. Persevere in these things. What a commission. What an incredible commission to the next generation. Powerful. And after almost 20 years of discipleship, Paul is now handing the baton to young Timothy. I was, I was uh, planning on mentioning it during the scripture reading time, but uh, Timothy was not a naive young teenager when this was written to him. He has been discipled by Paul for close to 20 years when 1 Timothy is written. Timothy is somewhere between 35 and 40 years old as a young man. That's his age at this point. That's young Timothy when he's told, don't let anyone look down upon your youth. And 1 Timothy is a letter Paul had delivered to Ephesus where he, he had assigned Timothy as pastor after the first crop of elders in that city washed out. We don't even know what happened to them. Paul had commissioned them in Acts chapter 20 and later on, uh, they're, they're nowhere to be found. He has to send young Timothy in uh, to grab the reins to take hold uh, of reinforcing and shepherding the Ephesian church. To Titus, Paul had to leave behind. Another young gentleman, Titus, uh, Paul had to leave behind on the island of Crete to strengthen generations uh, of elders there. Then Second Timothy... It's Paul's letter where he asked Timothy to return to Rome where Paul is in prison and he's about to be executed, martyred for Christ. There in chapter 4, Paul writes this. And this is slightly abridged. It's a long passage. But Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, Timothy, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth 
and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul says, it is now time. I must go. They must carry on. And unlike the old and foolish king, Christians have to recognize that we're eventually going to have to hand off the baton. We've got to have young people there ready to pick it up and run. We will not be here forever. Uh, We have got to embrace the promise of a new generation. I love the young folks that I see amongst us today. Um, Folks, we've got some promising new inventory. We really do. Great workers, great doctrine, strong faith. As I stated at the beginning, I love what I see in our young families. In our older generations, we want to remain wise. We want to be willing to learn, listen, where necessary, adjust. Doctrine never changes. The essential doctrines don't change. Generations must. They will. We've got to identify uh, wise young adults uh, to whom we can continue to hand the baton as it was passed to us, by the way. I don't know if you all have noticed, but we've, we've, we've got some great workers here and uh, we've got to be willing to pass the baton to them to help kingdoms, uh, for Christ uh, to work through them to build his kingdom. A little story with uh, where, I, where I came out of in my background, and I've shared this before. But uh, the church I came out of, Denton Bible Church, oh, they were big on this. You get the young folks with the, with the strength and the drive, you get them involved. And from time to time, they're, they're going to slip and they're going to skin their knee. Everybody makes mistakes. Which amongst us here has not made mistakes? Everyone makes mistakes. But their mindset of the church I came out of was discipleship and inclusion with anticipation of a new generation. They they took it head on. They were very diligent to get the younger folks involved. Uh, Gerald and I each watched a 40th anniversary of Denton Bible Church. And I had no no clue of this uh, when I was there. I didn't hear it until I was already here. I think they're 44 years now. They've been in existence and uh, over 44 years, at, at the 40-year mark, uh, Pastor Tom was giving an update on what their congregation had done through the grace of God. And they had, through that congregation, placed 50 senior pastors into other congregations around the country. What a work. What an amazing work. Scores of missionaries, scores of young families sent out, had their own missions training institute, equipping people to go out and to preach the gospel, to win people to the kingdom. I don't have a resistance to including young families. I don't have a resistance to ideas, at least ideas that nurture a healthy, multi-generational church. 
I also had an experience while Rita and I were gone this past week. We went out to the panhandle. And uh, this could be kind of the the flip side of what can happen. And I think we've all seen it happen. Rita and I, uh, through a mutual um, person, looked at a church there uh, and it was asked what my impression is of this church and I pulled in the driveway Rita and I pulled in the driveway and I immediately uh, responded saying it looks like nothing here has changed in 30 years it's dead pulling in you can say it's dead they've got a 13,000 square foot building bigger than both of our buildings together 20 to 30 people on a Sunday boy you don't want that to happen in fact, I drove, and this, this wasn't, wasn't to be rude, it's just truthful. I pulled out down the road and went past a, a funeral parlor. Uh, I, I told Reed, I said, there's more life in that funeral home than there was in that church over there. Don't want that to happen. You've got to bring in the next generation. Therefore, Speaking to the young generation now, I've spoken to, to older generations like us, I'm speaking to the younger generation now, you've got to buckle in. You've got to buckle in and step up. And, and like Timothy, you'll have to persevere through trials and adversity to win your generation and the next generation to Christ. And remember, verse 16 assures that the page is going to turn on you someday too. There will be a time when they ain't going to flock to you. I used to say at Delta Airlines, the only thing that is certain is change. Try to stop it as vanity. Striving after the wind. It's better to be wise and to work together. I think you younger folks out here, someday you're going to turn 39 just like I did. I didn't say when I turned 39. Your kids need you. They need you involved. My generation and the one before me, we need you. We need your help for this task. This is your church. The future is yours. And we're ready to help you here to achieve what Christ has for you. We want to do ministry together. We want generations worshiping together. We want to love one another together. We have got to persevere and serve. And when you do, we'll help you the best that we can. We love you. We love you. Let's pray.